I want to just take a few moments together um, to look at God's word. It's good to be back with you all again and be able to do this as joint churches um, and to, to come together in this way and to express our unity in this way. It's great. Okay, well, maybe if you turn with me to Colossians, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. We want to look at some verses there. Um, if, if you happen to have one of the Wexford Church Bibles, it's page 1183. 1183. The rest of you, you're on your own. Um, you have to scroll through your, your smartphone. You can do that. As, as a church, we looked at Colossians last year, um, early last year, um, and as, as we studied it and as I preached on it, there were several things that struck me um, through the letter, um, particularly Paul's vision in Colossians for, for the new humanity. He talks in, in chapter 3 of Colossians, chapter 3 and verse 11, he says, There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And, you know, as this letter went from Paul to the church at Colossae, it was brought by um, Onesimus, who was the runaway slave. Um, And along with the letter to the Colossians, he was also bringing a letter from Paul to Philemon, who was his master. And... And so Paul exhorts Philemon, his master, to accept Onesimus back as a fellow believer, no longer as a slave. And so what is described in Colossians is this radical community of equals, unheard of in the ancient world. And that's what you see throughout the letter. So that was one of the things that struck me um, as I was studying it and as I was preaching it um, in Wexford. But the other thing that struck me, and I kind of want us to look at together, was Paul's attitude towards suffering. The church at Colossae had been established by Epaphras. You read about that in chapter 1 and verse 7. Um, And Epaphras, he seems to have encountered Paul um, when he was in Ephesus, probably, and became a Christian there, and then he brought the gospel from Ephesus with Paul to Colossae and established the church. And so Paul is now writing to this church at Colossae, um, and he, you can just sense the, the, the affection between Paul and these believers. In, in chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 9, um, he says, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding. And then, through the rest of chapter 1, he reminds them of the gospel. And then we get to the verses that I want to look at. So it's chapter 1. And verse 24 to 27. So if you have it in front of you, please uh, look at it with me. Um, From verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, in these verses, we kind of see a window into Paul's attitude on suffering. And he talks about both his ministry 
and his message. So it's the ministry that he was living and the message that he was proclaiming. And the two are kind of intertwined. His message informs his ministry and his ministry is a demonstration of his message. It's not as if Paul preached one thing and then lived inconsistent with that. If you looked at his life and his ministry, you could tell what his message was. Or if you listened to Paul's message being proclaimed, then you could see his life and his ministry were consistent with that. So I want to take just a few minutes to think about those two things, his ministry and his message. The ministry he lived and then the message he proclaimed. Well, the first thing that you notice about his ministry and his life is that it was marked by suffering. And he begins in those verses, you know, quite, quite shockingly, I would say, in verse 24. Look at it again. Verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. That's quite shocking, isn't it? I wonder if you've ever visited um, the, the Skelligs off the coast of Kerry. Um, Skellig Michael is, of course, it's famous now for Star Wars, um, but it had a life way before Star Wars. Um, and it's, it's, it's this little island um, that rises up out of the sea, about 11 kilometers off the coast. And it's really, it's just like a lump of rock. And, it's, and perched on the top of this lump of rock, Skellig Michael, there's a kind of a, an area that's slightly flat. Um, and on that flat area, you find a little monastery. Beehive huts, cells, um, made of stone and slate. And they date back to the 500s. Now remember, Christianity came to Ireland in the 400s, 430s. So about 100 years after Christianity arrived in Ireland, the monks were on this little crop of rock, Skellig Michael, in their monastery. Can you imagine life on that, cut off from the mainland most of the year, buffeted by storms, wind, rain, freezing winters, and just a little group of monks there, disciples of Jesus who were committed to a life of prayer and study and solitude. And you know, when I visited it a number of years ago, and when I was there, and when I think about it since then, it makes me think how soft I am. You know, I, I complain. My study um, is in our garden. Uh, we have a brick-built uh, shed uh, for my study. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a bit cold there in the winter. And I have a wood-burning stove. But, you know, your feet get pretty cold. Your toes. Um, or in the morning time, you know, when my body protests and doesn't want to get out of bed. Doesn't want to get up early for a bit of extra study doesn't want to leave that comfy bed. We, uh, Andrew and um, Mick and Vincent and Mark and I go to a conference every year in January. It's the Preacher's Conference. Um, and when you're going to this conference, uh, on the conference form, they ask you if you want, if you're okay with sharing with someone or if you prefer to pay a little bit extra and have a single room. I always get the single room. Okay. I, I spent a couple of years sharing and the snoring just drove me mad. So I, I said, from now on, single room is for me. And you know, last time I was there, um, I was lying in bed and I was thinking, you know, next time I come to this conference, I really should bring my own pillow. I'd have such a better night's sleep. I don't know, maybe you're different from me. But for me, I, I lean in to comfort and ease 
that's my default. My body tells me that's where life is. And so when I read Paul's words here, and I read him saying, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. That kind of jars with my experience. And I want to suggest, as Western Christians, I think the Western church has become a bit soft, hasn't it? Not all around the world. There are plenty of parts of the world that are experiencing persecution, and where it's tough, and where Christians know what it means to suffer. But particularly in the West, I think. I think we struggle with verses like that, and we don't quite know what to do with those kind of sentences. Or or in Romans, where Paul says in Romans 5, he says, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Or James, in James 1, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy. And those verses kind of jar, don't they? They're not normally how we face life. And you see, what what emerges from the New Testament often feels very different from our attitude towards suffering. Less of a leaning into comfort and ease, and more almost of, of a leaning into suffering and discomfort and inconvenience. Paul writes to the Philippines in Philippians 1 verse 29, and he says, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. He says to the Philippines, it's been granted to you. You're allowed to. You're included amongst those who get to suffer for Christ. What a privilege. Really? And and Paul is not inconsistent with Jesus. Through the Gospels, Jesus reminded the disciples again and again that following him, that being a disciple of his, is, is always both good news and suffering. On the one hand, it's, it's the best of news, it's eternal life, it's life in its fullness. You remember John 10, 10, where he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. So there's peace, there's joy, there's contentment, there's fulfillment. And on the other hand, there's also, there's, there's suffering, and there's persecution, and there's hardships, and there's difficulties. In the Sermon on the Mount, in, in, in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. And when he was in the upper room with his disciples, he told them, in this world you will have trouble. It's not meant to be unexpected. Both good news and suffering. And the challenge has always been, for believers down through the centuries, the challenge has always been to follow Jesus and to walk the walk and to keep in mind both and to factor in both. Because our our tendency, I think, is is to lean in to the peace and joy and contentment and fulfillment as the norm and the expectation and then to pray away the suffering and persecution and hardships and difficulties They're unwelcome. They're unexpected interruptions. 
And yet here, Paul lives them both. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I have joy and peace in the midst of suffering and hardship. Have you ever wondered what a coroner would have made of Paul's body? There's a morbid thought, eh? Do you ever watch those TV programs, you know, Waking the Dead, um, where the pathologist examines the body and goes over the body, every inch of the body, and they can tell the cause of death, and they can tell so much more as well. Every bruise, every mark, this scar, everything tells a story. This injury that, you know, maybe was compensating uh, for, for this other difficulty the person had. What would Paul have looked like? His stoning at Lystra, you remember? Where they dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. They thought, job done. We can move on. Or in Corinthians, when he talks about all the times uh, when he suffered. In 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And tradition says that eventually he was beheaded upside down outside Rome. He says, I rejoice in what I suffer. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? Paul saw his sufferings as a continuation of Christ's sufferings. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, what he can't mean, I mean, he doesn't mean that there's anything lacking or deficient in terms of Christ's sufferings for our sins, in terms of the atonement. I mean, Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. The price is paid. It's complete. God's wrath is satisfied. Sin has been atoned for. It's done. It's finished. So what did he mean? What's being added to then? Well, there is a suffering that's part and parcel of the presentation of Christ. Christ's work to every person. As the gospel goes out, as the message of forgiveness through Jesus goes out, as it's presented to the world, there's a suffering that accompanies that. Christ continues to suffer in and through his church. That's why, you remember when Paul was knocked off his horse just outside of uh, Damascus, um, bringing suffering and bringing persecution to the Christians in Damascus? You remember he cried out, Who are you, Lord? And you remember the answer? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
Christ's suffering continues. Not his atoning work, but the suffering associated with the role of bringing that finished work to individuals. John Piper tells the story of of an Indian evangelist. Um, He was a new believer and he was keen to tell the gospel in the different villages in his area. Um, And on one occasion, he traveled for a whole day, um, a very difficult journey, um, and arrived in the village late at night. But he decided to begin anyway. Um, And so he began to speak to the people, and a crowd gathered, and he began to explain the gospel to them. But they scoffed at him, and they rejected him. And he was tired, worn out from his travels. He was discouraged. Um, And so he, he withdrew from the village, and just outside the village, he lay down under a tree and went to sleep. A couple of hours later, um, he was he was wakened um, and startled because the whole village had gathered around him and surrounded him at this tree. And one of the leaders approached him and he thought to himself, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble now. The leader came up to him and the leader said, we came out to you because someone noticed your bloodied feet. We decided you must be a holy man, must care about us. Because you came so far and have feet like this. We're ready now to hear your message. See, there's, there's, there's a suffering that accompanies the proclamation and the presentation of the gospel. And what is lacking in terms of what Paul is talking about, what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions that Paul fills up and that any believer fills up is a personal, costly presentation of of Jesus' work on the cross, the gospel to those for whom he died. There's a suffering that's part and parcel of life and ministry that Paul and that we can rejoice in. That's Paul's ministry. But to really understand Paul's attitude about suffering and how it it can be so different from ours and how he leans into it and how he rejoices in it, We've got to look at, at the heart of his ministry, which was the message that he proclaimed in these verses. Verse 25, he says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And then he kind of summarizes his message in verse 26 and 27. He says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which is what Vincent was talking about at the communion. Christ in you, the hope of glory. First of all, he says it's, it's a mystery. Now, all around this area in the ancient world, there was a set of religions called the mystery religions, the mystery cults. And the idea in these mystery religions in this area was that, th- that an individual was initiated into their religion by being told these secrets hidden knowledge. And the appeal of these cults was um, that only the initiated, only a few knew the hidden knowledge. And it seems that that some of the false teachers in the church at Colossae, they were operating in the same way. They were claiming that they had truths that were known to them, but not everybody else. That, that, That they could offer spiritual experiences that were open to no one else that they could initiate you into these mysteries that were known only to those of them who were very, very mature. 
And Paul kind of blows all that out of the water. And he says, yes, it was a mystery. It was hidden. But now it's disclosed, he says. It was unknown, but now it's been revealed. And the core of the message that's been revealed is Christ in you, he says. The hope of glory. The God, the Creator, all-powerful, all-holy, that He would cause all His fullness to dwell in the man Jesus. That that man was divine and human. That He would live and minister and serve in the backwater of Galilee. And that He would invite men and women to come to Him, to bow before Him and make Him Lord. That He would die the death of a criminal. That through His death, God would begin the process of reconciling all things to Himself. And that His Spirit dwells in individuals, makes His home in you. Forgiving your sin, reconciling you to God, showing you grace now and in the future glory. That's the mystery, Paul says. It's been revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That He will, according to Philippians, he says in Philippians, transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Now we experience the grace Christ in you, then we will experience the glory. Listen to how um, C.S. Lewis puts it. Um, He always puts it so much more poetically than than I can. Um, C.S. Lewis, listen to him. He says, Our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honour beyond all merits. At present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendours we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumour that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The hope of glory. So why is it that Paul can lean into suffering? Well, part of the answer is because he sees the bigger picture. He has a clear vision in his mind of the future. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he has a clear sense of his own calling. In verse 25, he tells us, I I have become its servant, that's the church's servant, by the commission God gave me. Do you remember Paul's commission? Back in Acts, when he came into Damascus and he was met by Ananias um, in Acts 9. And God said to Ananias, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That was Paul's commission. And in a sense, behind him were those words from God. You're going to be my chosen instrument and I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. And ahead of him then is Christ in him, the hope of glory. And that shaped his ministry and his message, living between those two. His commission that told him he was going to have to suffer and the future glory. 
And so every time it was painful for Paul to be obedient, he knew this is what God said would happen. And so just as surely ahead is glory. And so I can rejoice and be full of joy. Well, what about us? It really shouldn't be all that different, should it? We too have our calling and our commission from Christ. Remember Jesus in the Gospels, Mark 8, verse 34. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, this is, this is, I'm not talking about suffering for the sake of suffering. We're not, we're not told to go out of our way to make ourselves uncomfortable and inconvenienced. I'm not advocating that we all move back to Skellig Michael. But every time there's a choice where it's painful to be obedient, where it costs you something to be obedient, when it's a struggle to forgive someone who has wronged you, or, or, or it hurts your pride to seek someone else's forgiveness. Or he calls you to, to speak up for him, and that costs you. Or you're, you're, you're trying to fight temptation in a particular area, and you know it will be so much more easier and convenient to just give in. Or you're simply presented with an opportunity to die to your own preoccupations and needs and serve someone else, care for a needy person. In any of those situations, in any of those choices, in any of those moments, remember, that's what he said would happen. Discipleship would involve cost and suffering. But just as surely, ahead is glory. And so in the midst of the difficulties and the hardships, you can rejoice. It's about seeing the whole picture. It's about raising your eyes above the immediate and taking in the whole landscape, the whole of eternity. Christ in you, the hope of glory.